应对气候变化巴黎协定，代表了全球绿色低碳转型的大方向，是保护地球。This is China's President Xi Jinping. We're in September 2020 at the United Nations General Assembly, and President Xi is about to start the clock on China's challenge of the century. 二氧化碳排放力争于二零三零年前达到峰值，努力争取二零六零年前实现碳中和。Here, President Xi pledges that China will peak its carbon emissions by 2030 and achieve carbon neutrality by 2060, the 3060 goal. That is quite a big step for the country, who is still the world's foremost carbon emitter by far. So, how will China achieve this? From Hong Kong, I'm your host Koa Tran from Sustainable Asia. And today, in this special episode, we discuss the financial optics of China moving towards carbon neutrality. Historically, China's cumulative emissions haven't been as high as many of the most developed countries in the world. Currently, however, China's annual emissions are the highest. Numbers indicate that in 2019, China released 27% of global carbon emissions. Most of that is due to coal, which represents about 60% of the country's total energy supply, and oil and gas, which represents 20%. Yet, despite all this, China also managed to surprise many on the renewable energy front. The International Energy Agency forecasts that between 2019 and 2024, China will account for 40% of global renewable energy capacity expansion. It is currently leading globally in terms of photovoltaic cells or solar panels installed and manufacturing. Around 71% of the world's solar panels come from China. So, how exactly will China manage to curb its reliance on coal and strengthen its renewable energy supplies? While it's challenging to provide a straightforward answer to this, there are some nuances we can look at from a financial perspective. That will help us understand how China intends to transition towards carbon neutrality. China is at a conjuncture where it is aiming to cultivate new growth drivers to change the growth from construction-led to capex and consumption. That was Jing Liu, our special guest today, here to guide us through China's green transition. Jing Liu is a senior economist at HSBC, or in her own words. I'm following the development of China very closely. Economics, finance, and policy changes. We do forecast. We interpret what each policy move means, and we actually serve our clients, both the institutional clients, meaning mutual fund, hedge fund, pension funds, and also corporate clients like MNC startups, and trying to interpret for them what's going on in China, the macro trends, so on and so forth. Jing, could you tell us why HSBC is interested in this line of research? From HSBC's perspective, we have lots of business in Asia and, in particular, Greater China. So our clients rely on us to tell them what's going on in China, the policy implication, economic growth, and stuff like that. So we are helping our client to get a better grip of what's going on. To better understand the transition that is happening in the economy, we should perhaps first see what traditionally has been powering it. Could you tell us what were the main sectors driving growth in China? I would say, you know, property and traditional infrastructure still constitute a very important part of China's growth. However, 
China is at a conjuncture where it is aiming to cultivate new growth drivers to change the growth from construction led to capex and consumption. Capex, by the way, refers to capital expenditures or funds used to acquire, maintain, or upgrade physical assets. This includes things like property, but also technology. Going forward, we see three important growth drivers. The first and foremost being the green investment. The second one is basically the advanced manufacturing investment, and in the medium to long term, when China managed to expand the middle income group, then the consumption would be another driver. What exactly do you mean by green investments in China? Could you walk us through that growth driver a little? Yeah, sure.、Uh, when people talk about green investments, the narrow definition seems to be focusing on some green sector. Let's say EV is green, and then the cars. Burning the fossil fuel isn't, but actually the green transformation means every part of the whole economy. Actually, every different sector should be participating in that. So for this, we need to have a green power, the power sector transformation. We need to have a green industrial sector, meaning that we hope that over time they they will become green to burn less energy, become more energy efficient. They will have less carbon dioxide emission and so on and so forth. And then also transportation, of course, you know, this is where EV fits in. Transportation needs to be green, and also buildings need to be green. Like in terms of the heating, the cooling, how to use the waste heat, and so on and so forth. So it actually involves every part because altogether, when we talk about carbon neutrality, that counts every part, every sector of the economy, not just a single sector. Got it. But if you had to single out a few key sectors of this green transformation, what would they be? Power and industrial sectors are the most important two sectors. Because altogether they accounted for about eighty percent of the CO two emission. Ah,、uh, this is far more than the world average of sixty percent. And in some developed countries such as U.S. and U.K., this ratio is below fifty percent. So for China, if we can manage the green transformation of these two sectors, that will be the backbone for China's overall plan. All right, let's start with the power sector. What's the plan for its green transformation? For the power sector, this is basically to increase the renewable energy share in the whole electricity generation, and also there is an overarching plan of how to do the effective and efficient transmission and distribution of electricity. That means there has to be things like energy storage solutions to basically smooth out the peak and non-peak, especially for renewable energy. Sometimes we don't have the sunshine. Sometimes we don't have the wind blowing. Then where do we get the energy from? And also distribution across regions. It has to be more responsive to the demand. Maybe across、uh, different regions, their demand at the same time、uh, during the day may vary from today to tomorrow. Those has to be in place. What about for the industrial sector? For the industrial sector, it's equally important because it constitutes about thirty-six percent of the emission. And for China's industrial sectors, the first batch of plans are with respect to the heavy industries like steel, cement. We cannot say we no longer rely on steel and the cement. We still need that for the modern society. But the plan is how to transform them. How do you suggest we do that? Could you give us an example? I think the recent document issued by China's、uh, central planner, the NDRC. Basically says within three years for certain heavy industry 
they need to have a plan to reach the target of energy intensity. And then if they cannot meet the goal, they need to retire their equipment. So with that kind of whip, uh, the industries have to start their plan to do the transformation, maybe equipment upgrading, and so on and so forth. Got it. So the power and industrial sectors, very important and key in China's green transition. Now, coming back to our green investments, what would China need to invest in all its sectors to achieve its 3060 goal? In order to achieve this uh, 3060 goal, I would say it's a formidable task, but not mission impossible. China needs lots of investment to facilitate the change. We have looked at uh, different estimations, and apparently the most conservative one is by the International Energy Agency. And basically it says in the next 40 years, China needs at least 200 trillion renminbi to do the green transformation. And of course, there are some other estimates as a one by Green Finance Committee of China. It estimated an even higher number of money needed, basically in the next 30 years, 487 trillion. So putting things together, basically that means hundreds of trillions of yuan is needed for transform China into green China. That does sound like a lot. Since when have you seen this trend pick up? Did it start even before President Xi's announcement? Actually, it silently started, I would say, at least, uh, you know, 15-something years ago. Because I remember started in 2006, basically, we would see the five-year plan issued by NDRC talking about what's an energy five-year plan. And there, they started to have targets like energy consumption, energy intensity, and then also carbon dioxide emission. And then over years, we have seen basically the progress. And then the momentum really picks up after President Xi Jinping pledged. You mentioned earlier looking at conservative estimates from the International Energy Agency. What exactly are they looking at to measure this growth? The International Energy Agency's uh, metrics, that paper is basically a roadmap on how China should get there. So it maps out what China's current stages are and then what each of the sector needs to do to achieve there. And in broad terms, they basically look at power sector, the industrial sectors, the transportation, and also buildings. And it's just uh, very detailed saying that, you know, for the power sector, for example, currently China still heavily rely on coal-fired plants to generate electricity. But over time, the idea is to reduce the share of coal, but increase the renewable energy. So things like that. Very, very long paper, very detailed plan. Speaking of this plan, how much of this transition do you think is policy-induced? And how much of it is linked to industries themselves seeing green opportunities in the market? So I think for this, this is a very interesting question. As you may imagine, for things related to, say, the CO2 emission and energy consumption, the industry or the market itself may not have the incentive to invest and improve the situation. That is what economists call the market failure. This is where the government policy needs to come in. And that is why we have seen in different kind of meetings, internationally, domestically, the governments are debating what are the right incentives to give to the industry, what are the right regulation to put in place, such that with a combination of carrot and stick, the industry can actually go on the right path. To clarify, the carrot and stick that Jing speaks of here refers to different kinds of government policies. 
A carrot policy incentivizes and guides industries towards something. This includes things like tax incentives or grants. And a stick policy typically keeps things in check, like setting minimum standards or mandatory disclosures. So, let's see how well these policies have been doing so far. Jing, could you tell us how China's industries are adapting to this shift? I think the industries are actually adapting fast. Now that China also issued various of documents, mainly over the past couple of months, which have the so-called one plus n framework. The one means the overarching guideline on the roadmap and how China should get there, and n that means for region-specific sectors they need to have their plan. For example, for the power sector, they have a very clear target currently. The installed capacity for wind and solar in China altogether is a little bit over 500 gigawatts. But by 2030, the government says that that has to increase to at least 1,200 gigawatts. So this is basically a map of target, and then people need to put that into action. So you may have heard that back in October, China announced that it's building renewable energy base in the western part of China in a desert. And then the plan is to generate the green electricity. And following that, we need to basically transmit the green electricity from the western part to the heavy users, mainly located on the east and south part of China. So everything is followed through very nicely. What about COVID nineteen? How has it impacted China's transition so far? Oh, so I think you know, in China's case, for the COVID. China stimulus package mainly targets the enterprises, so their primary goal is to have the production, you know, normalize first. So in that sense, I think the COVID shock to China's industrial sectors may not be as big as to other countries. In China's case, also at the same time, we have seen President Xi Jinping、uh, made the pledge. To the UN in 2020, so that is in the middle of COVID. That serves as a big tailwind. So it's a little bit hard to say, you know, which one, which force is bigger. So I would say, if we purely observe what's going on now, we certainly see an acceleration of implementing the green transformation than pre-COVID. In the last couple of months, we've heard a lot on power crunches in Chinese factories and cities. Could you comment on this situation now and its implications on the green transition? Sure, I think the energy crunch is observed not only in China but also in Europe and even in many other economies. So、um, I think the takeaway is not that people need to go back and not go for the climate target. But we should look at from another perspective. This basically means we haven't had a good plan yet. We haven't made enough investment in renewable energy before. You know, people are very hastily、uh, transition or trying to retire the fossil fuel. So this, to some extent, is a good signal for people to have a more comprehensive planning to start to invest early rather than later. So in China's case, I think the power shortage. Had occupied the headline back in、uh, September because in some provinces it's quite extreme to the extent that they claim the traffic lights don't even have enough electricity to power on. From your economic point of view, what happened in those power crunches in China before the recent change? Actually, the coal prices are market based, but the government has been having a control on the electricity prices. So. 
that basically contributed to the situation for some coal-fired plants. The more they produce, you know, the more loss they make out of it. So they don't have the incentive to generate the electricity. Why would they need to generate more electricity? This year happens to be the year China's export continues to surprise the market on the upside. At the same time, we have seen a very elevated PPI inflation, which means actually the upstream industry probably have been making more profits than before. They have the incentive to step up the production. So all those things putting together means there's more demand for electricity. So what has China done to correct this lack of incentive in energy production? The NDRC has made a very swift reform. In early October, for the coal, they directly control the spot and future prices. So we have seen the coal prices basically retreat from the peak very quickly. And then on the other hand, the output, the electricity price, they start to allow more fluctuation of a wider band around the so-called reference on-grid tariff. And then for the heavy industry, those energy-intensive sectors, they allow them to purchase the electricity directly. With the power plants, so they can negotiate based on market price instead of being, you know, restrained by this、uh, reference price. And has this lessened the threat of power crunches for the time being and in the foreseeable future? That has improved the situation quite a bit, and we have seen also, you know, as a temporary measure, you know, more coal production in China, so on and so forth. So I would say the worst probably has passed in terms of the power shortage. Got it. But still, this doesn't change the fact that we're seeing more coal production in China despite its climate pledges. What kind of message do you think this is sending to the world? Do you think we're walking backwards? I think、uh, not necessarily, because there's this balance between energy security and also economic growth. So I think this basically means China needs to have a better plan. The similar situation have been observed in other countries. For example, Germany, when there hasn't been enough wind. The wind power supply has been in shortage earlier, so they have to go back to more reliance on the coal power plants as well. So you know, I would say, as I just said, this basically means we need a better planning. We need to make the investment in renewable energy early on. Maybe a not a bad thing. <laughs> Could you tell us a bit more about this investment in renewables? Yes, actually, we have seen.、Uh, I just mentioned China is building the renewable energy base in the west side. They announced the first batch is 100 gigawatts, and then only within two months recently, they announced their request for a quotation for the second batch. And then the news has that the second batch might be even bigger than the first one. So that means you know they're very determined to push this through. And will coal remain part of China's transition? For coal, I think they realize, you know, in the short term, they cannot live without it. So you may have heard, actually, the state council announced they they are going to launch a new relenting scheme called the Clean Coal Relenting, which is helping to, you know, basically research or develop the technology which can make the coal fire plants cleaner or use of coal cleaner in general. Are you referring to carbon capture technology being installed? It hasn't been very specific on what kind of clean coal technology, but I can imagine that could be one of it. We've heard a lot about solar and wind, but what can you tell us about hydro and nuclear power in China? For hydro, the share is more or less stable. I see the projection by some government agency is between ten to fifteen percent from now to twenty sixty. 
So I think that will continue. For the nuclear, the projected share is between two to three percent. It's not going to have a dramatic increase, and for obvious reason, I think the nuclear accidents in other parts of the world, whenever it happens, usually it's like very serious consequences, and then. Uh, lots of government around the world are very concerned about it and trying to do it very carefully. But that being said, I want to highlight that now there's a global effort trying to research a new type of nuclear plant. It's called fusion. The current one is called fission. Fission means breaking the atom apart and release energy, and the fusion means. Combining atoms together to generate energy. This is the same way that our sun is generating the energy. So apparently, recently there's a coordinated effort across many different countries to set up a nuclear fusion lab in France. So hopefully, if you know the human being can make great breakthrough along those lines, then that type of nuclear energy will be very clean, very safe, very reliable. Let's talk about the money a little more. You've mentioned estimates of 200, 400 trillion RMB for China to transform its economy over the next 30 to 40 years. But who will be providing the funds? So currently, if we look at the scale of the green investment, basically the amount outstanding sits somewhere between 15 to 16 trillion RMB, and the majority of that, 95 percent of that, is via the banks. Especially the big banks providing funding to the industry, and on top of that, there's some. We have seen the trend of more and more companies coming out and issue green bonds themselves.、Uh, so that would be a rising source directly from the capital market, and also the private equity and venture capital funds are starting to look for opportunities in this field and try to cultivate some new technology, invest more. So that's a small part as well. So altogether, banks still dominate, but we will see capital markets start to play a big role. We know green investments normally face some return uncertainty. It's a longer-term investments, and things don't always turn out as planned. How do you think that would affect the private sector? Yeah, that's a great question. I think for any frontier kind of technology, it bears that characteristic. At the same time, government certainly has a role to play. In the early stage, for example, we talk about how to transmit the green electricity from the west to east and south of China. That、uh, involves construction of so-called ultra-high voltage transmission line, and that one, you know, according to our equity analysts, each of that line will cost something like 20 billion RMB. So that's a lot of investment, and the construction period is long. And then you need quite some years to basically make a profit out of it. So in that kind of a situation, I would say you know the government or SOEs would be the big players for any frontier technology. Government can invest a lot in the R and D, and、uh, for some startup, they can provide some guarantee until those projects become bankable, meaning that the commercial from the commercial perspective, more and more companies are willing to enter. Other than collaborating with industries and policies, as mentioned earlier, what else has the government done on the financial front to advance the green agenda? The other thing is we have gained a lot of momentum recently about the exchange, the carbon pricing, you know, the emission trading system in China. So that will be very important too for the government to play its role. In the beginning, that only covers the power sector. 
So we mentioned power sector is important. About 40, more than 40% of the carbon dioxide emission is from this sector. But, you know, covering the power sector so far, the allocation of quota is kind of free. It's free allocation. And in the early stage, it's not quite binding. But over time, they want to make changes. First of all, it will become an auction-based allocation of quota. So that means the companies need to pay for how much they want to emit. And then secondly, the coverage will expand first to the energy intensive sectors. So, you know, more and more probably, you know, what we talk about the heavy industry, those sectors will come into play as well. So, you know, over time, this uh, carbon pricing will actually make the kind of internalize a cost for the company. So now when they calculate the cost and benefit, they need to think about, oh, emission is not free. Now there's a price tag for that. Maybe the best way for us to do it is to, you know, proactively invest in the new technology to reduce the emission so the cost of emission will be lower. So they need to do this kind of weighing. So I think over time, it will be a very interesting, important game. And from the government perspective, they can collect extra taxes or money from the carbon pricing, and they use that money to invest in the needed technology to facilitate the change. Now, I know it's only been launched last summer, but can you comment at this point on how effective the carbon ETS or emissions trading scheme in China has been? I think it's still kind of early to comment on that. And also, if we look at development in, say, in Europe, it also takes quite some years for it to you know, function and become very effective. Generally speaking for China at this point, can you comment on its success rate on meeting carbon neutrality? Do you think China is on the right path? Yeah, certainly. I think basically when we look at that, we can probably look at what the COP26 and you know, future COP27 and other meetings will you know, frame this kind of question. We need to see first whether China has a pledge, it already has, and then uh, whether it has a concrete plan on how to, like a roadmap, how to get there. And the currently China and different agencies, different level of governments are drafting the plan, the roadmap toward that. And then we need to see whether they're implementing it, where the money comes from. So if we put all those things together again, I just want to reiterate, this is a formidable task, but not mission impossible. As an economist, what are you and HSBC keeping track of in terms of China's green transition? We can look at the pledges there, the roadmap is developing, is being developed, and we have seen different government measures like incentives, like the carbon pricing start to be introduced. And also we have seen the green finance is being put together and some hard statistics would be what is, uh, what's that called? The emission density. That means per unit of uh, GDP produced, what, how much uh, carbon dioxide uh, does China actually emit and energy consumption intensity and those kind of things can be a good measure. Are there any national events we should look forward to for more developments on all this? Sure. I think, you know, for March, we will have the NPC, the National People's Congress. That is where, you know, the premier will announce a government uh, work report that usually includes the planning for the next year, the target for uh, different areas of the economy. And now that with green investment being such an important role, we think they will mention it as well. I'm curious. 
What do you think China's role would be at COP27? I think so. Looking at COP27, apparently two important things the our ESG, I mean ESG analysts are watching for. The first is you know they're hoping the countries can step up their pledge. So currently, still some countries haven't pledged on their climate target. Some only cover certain part of the economy. And then you know、uh, the timeline is you know scattered around different、uh, times, so they want to see a step up,、uh, you know, pledge. For China's case, I think the thirty sixty is quite solid, covers many different sectors. So you know, probably what we're looking for is on the carbon finance perspective. So the developed countries、uh, haven't met the target of their promise of supporting. The developing countries in meeting the climate target, and then there will be more discussion on how different countries collaborate with each other on this front. And in the past COP26, we saw kind of a surprise、uh, collaboration between U.S. and China, announcing they are going to work with each other on achieving this. And being the largest and second largest emitter of this world, the cooperation between China and U.S. on this agenda will be very important. Jing, if you had any last words for this episode, what would be a good conclusion to take with us and step forward in the new year in terms of this green transition? Sure. So basically, as I just mentioned, I think it's a formidable task, but not mission impossible. And with green investment to you know take on as a new driver for China's economy, I think it actually I would say this is a One stone, two birds kind of situation. As I mentioned, the property sector is, you know, under the tight、uh, regulation, is cooling down. So in the short term, China needs something to buffer the slowdown, and the green investment can kickstart right away. So this is serving the short term purpose, and for the medium to long term transformation, this is also working towards China's green target or climate target. So. I think this year we should see acceleration for green investment, and、uh, from the government perspective, we have heard、uh, lots of measures being put in place for green, in particular the green relanding scheme, the clean coal relanding scheme, and possibly we'll start to see more and more green government bonds being issued as well. Once again, thank you for joining us, Jing. Yeah, thank you for having me. This has been our special episode on China's green transition with HSBC's senior economist Jing Liu. You can find links to Jing's research paper and other material discussed in this episode in the show notes. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends and family, and check out other SEMP articles and content covering green developments in China. Once again, my name is Koa Tran from Sustainable Asia. Thank you for listening.